Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from the words of Henry Morris, who wrote a book in 1951 called The Bible and Modern Science. We've studied all of his scientific things about the theory of evolution and and the flood and so on. Now we're talking about the Bible and history. We believe the Bible because God the Holy Spirit wrote that Bible and God the Holy Spirit is in us telling us that's true. This is just some external, external confirmation of the Word of God. The book of Daniel is where we're at right now. Considerable archaeological evidence has been brought to light that indirectly reveals the genuineness of the setting of the book of Daniel in the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Excavations on the site of ancient Babylon have unearthed a building, the inscriptions on which show that it was used for the instruction of captive princes and nobles in the learning of the Chaldeans, thus indicating that the treatment of Daniel and his three friends by the Babylonians in such a gracious fashion at first was not at all foreign to the policies of that time, as formerly claimed by the critics. A huge furnace was discovered with inscriptions to the effect that it was used to burn those who refused to worship the gods of the Babylonians, which shows that the story of the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace had a basis, at least, of fact. A large pit was discovered which was used for feeding to the wild beasts, those men who disobeyed the decrees of the king. There was even a list of the ones who had been slain there, and Daniel's name was not among them. An inscription was discovered made by Nebuchadnezzar himself, containing a strange story which many archaeologists are convinced corresponds to the period of the king's madness described by Daniel. The most serious criticism of Daniel has lain in its supposed historical inaccuracies. According to Daniel, Belshazzar was king of Babylon at the time of the conquest of the Persians by Cyrus and was slain on the night of his drunken feast when the Persian army under Darius the Mede captured Babylon. But secular history said that Nabonidus was king of Babylon at the time, and furthermore that he was not slain but carried away captive by the Persians. Of course, the critics made the most of this very obvious error, maintaining that Belshazzar was, was merely a non-existent person invented by some later writer who was unfamiliar with history. But through the years, a great abundance of archaeological evidence has been accumulated which establishes beyond all doubt that Belshazzar actually did exist, although all historians but Daniel seem to have forgotten all about him. Belshazzar, it is now known, was the son of Nabonidus and was a sort of regent over Babylon, serving in the place of his father, who was away from the city at the time of the Persian conquest. In other words, both Nabonidus and Belshazzar were kings of Babylon in a very real sense at that time. Archaeology has also revealed that Belshazzar actually was killed in his palace by the Persians on that fateful night. The book of Isaiah also contains many marvelous prophecies which were later fulfilled. Therefore, it has been commonly divided by the critics 
into at least two divisions assigned to different authors at different periods of history. In spite of an abundance of external testimony and evidence against this notion, Jesus quoted from both of the two main divisions of Isaiah and attributed both to the one prophet Isaiah. The discovery in 1948 of a very early copy of the book of Isaiah has been given wide publicity in the popular press. This manuscript has been dated at no later than 100 B.C., which is earlier by many centuries than any other extant Old Testament manuscripts. In view of this, it's very significant that the manuscript is in all important particulars identical with the received Isaiah text, bearing a striking testimony to the care and accuracy with which the Hebrew scribes copied and transmitted the scriptures. Most of the few differences that do exist are merely matters of spelling, and there are no discrepancies of any real significance at all. There is no indication whatever that the scribe regarded the book as being subdivisible into, into two main parts composed by different authors. Well, since this first discovery, many other manuscripts have been found in caves around the Dead Sea probably deposited there by a pre-Christian sect known as the Essenes. These manuscripts contain a large part of the Old Testament and are all essentially identical with the received text, in spite of all the fact in spite of the fact that the oldest copies previously available are dated some nine hundred to a thousand years later than these Dead Sea Scrolls. We could occupy several chapters with other details of how the Old Testament has been and is being vindicated in a most wonderful way by the finds of archaeology. But let us consider briefly some of the discoveries of modern research in archaeology and textual criticism which bear on the historicity and trustworthiness of the New Testament. Although it was formerly suggested by some critics that Jesus was entirely a legendary character, in recent years such a mass of evidence to the contrary has been compiled that no informed person longer doubts that Jesus actually lived and was at least a very great religious leader and teacher. Numerous inscriptions and papyri have been discovered that either mention the name of Christ as the leader and founder of the sect of the Christians or that simply refer to the Christians and their amazingly rapid growth. Many of these date from the first or very early second centuries, and it is impossible to suppose that they all resulted from the devotion of a group of fanatics to a legendary character. It's also been well established now that the books of the New Testament are all completely authentic from the standpoint of authorship and antiquity. It was formerly charged that many of the books, if not all, were written long after the time of Jesus by men other than the traditional authors. This indictment was aimed not so much at the Pauline writings, however, as at the Gospels, especially that of John, and at the Acts. Especially in the latter book, the book of Acts, it was long supposed that there were numerous gross historical inaccuracies and that, in fact, the whole tenor of the book belonged to a much later time than the days of the apostles. However, 
archaeology has completely refuted this claim. Practically all the towns and cities mentioned in Acts or in the Gospels have been located, with the finds at all these places being of such nature as to wholly vindicate the historical accuracy of the writers. There are many remains of the architecture of Herod throughout Palestine, although his temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Well-preserved relics of a synagogue have been explored on the site of Capernaum. It is possible that this was the very synagogue in which Jesus occasionally preached. Of course, there are a great many sites and structures that are connected by tradition with Jesus and the apostles, but in most cases these are not susceptible of either proof or disproof. Miniature images of Diana, such as described by Luke in the Acts, have been unearthed in Grecian cities. An altar was found dedicated to the unknown God, probably similar to the one that Paul made the subject of his Athens sermon. The remains of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, from which Paul delivered this sermon, may still be seen. Inscriptions have been found in great abundance, some of which seem to contain names of people actually mentioned in the New Testament. Many Roman coins have been found, including the Roman penny with Caesar's likeness, which Jesus observed, and which prompted him to caution his questioners to render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. Inscriptions have been found describing the Roman census, which was taken, it seems, about every 13 years. During one of these, Luke states, Jesus was born. Criticism long maintained that this was a definite historical error because there was no record of any Roman census at such an early date. Later discoveries have revealed otherwise, however, and it is now known that the census had been an established custom for many years previous. All of these finds, as well as many others, date from apostolic times and give the historical portions of the New Testament a definite vindication. Even when attacked from the linguistic side, the New Testament has emerged victorious. The oldest New Testament manuscripts extant were written in Greek, but in a form of Greek unknown to classical literature. A great many words were ascribed by the critics to later origin. However, it is known now from many finds of papyri inscriptions dating from the first century and earlier that this peculiar language, now known as Koine Greek, was the universal language of the common people of the Mediterranean world during the time of Christ and the apostles. The book of John has been subjected to great criticism through the centuries, probably because of its superb presentation of Jesus as the Son of God, through whom alone men can be saved. Modern critics have dated its composition at some three or four centuries after Christ because they decided its supposedly peculiar theology belonged to that period rather than to the first century. However, many evidences exist from early second century writers who refer to or quote from John's Gospel that it was composed no later than 95 AD and by John himself. In 1935, a part of John's gospel was found on a papyrus fragment 
which has been dated by all authorities as at least before 150 AD. This has demonstrated conclusively that this gospel could not have been written later than about 100 AD, which has always been maintained by the church. Similar papyrus evidences have come to light demonstrating the first century origin of the other gospels. There remains, however, the question of whether the events described in the books, especially those involving miracles, ever really took place or were invented by the writers as aids to the spread of the new religion. And then there's the question as to whether the, the character and life of Jesus were really as perfect as represented. It will surely be admitted that all the facts of the New Testament record, the virgin birth, the miracles, the transfiguration, the sinless life, stand or fall with the truth or falsity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If Jesus died and rose again, which is the central and foundational belief of all true Christianity, then he must in truth have been very God, and there remains no rational difficulty in believing the other things, which upon analysis in the light of his resurrection become, in fact, quite necessary. And so next time we'll talk about the question, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Now you all who are listening to me probably already know the answer to that question because you have experienced this Jesus and you have believed in him for a long time. But suffer with me through this external confirmation of your faith. And, and all of this, remember, is only external. We internally know the word of God is true. Thank you for being with me today. And I ask that you look around this site and find the words of some very great preachers, Spurgeon and a whole bunch of others. Persecution stories also from North Korea, both in English and Korean. Bible studies on a number of subjects and a blog. And then there's my YouTube channel called Pasture Lands or one of my books at Amazon.com. Also, if you'll just email me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com, I'll share details of our Zoom meetings. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on August 17, 2022. Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.